that? Get the heck out of here, bird. I'm trying to do a podcast. Don't you backtalk me. Shoot. Shoot. That's right. It's my house. Bird going to try to come in. Hi. This podcast is for all the water and land protectors out there. Those who have struggled in the past or are struggling now to protect our natural world. The podcast is devoted to the idea that failing is not possible when standing up for life. In the spirit of those who came before us and for the love of those who will come after us, this podcast is for us to come together, to heal, to forgive, to dream, to find our power, and to lift up the stories of Earth come alive to defend herself. Because that is what each of us are. Welcome. Won't you join us in the circle? Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode four of a six-part series called Failing to Save the Earth. This one's called Failing Serendipity, and we'll get into that in a minute, but I want to introduce my co-host for this uh, episode, and it's Cindy Spoon. I know a lot of people out there probably already know Cindy because she she does a lot of stuff for a lot of people, but uh, Cindy, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I never got that bio. So. <laughs> um, thank you, Sheree, for having me. My name is Cindy. Um, I am a grassroots organizer and a direct action trainer. I'm mostly based in Texas but I've been hanging out a few other places recently. And a lot of my work has been um, resisting fossil fuel infrastructure in Texas, but I'm also involved um, in the abortion rights movement. And I work with the Texas Equal Access Fund in Dallas. Cool. So, hey, Cindy, uh, at the beginning of every uh, podcast here, we've played a little word association game. I think you're going to enjoy it. Most people have. But yeah, basically, I'm going to say a word to you. And then I need you to say like the first word that comes to your mind. And maybe we'll talk about it. Maybe we'll just move on to the next word. Would you like to play? Okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. Your first word, Texas. Food. Why do you say food? Because all my favorite foods are in Texas. Uh, I know that feeling. I I That's one thing I miss, Louisiana food. Right up here, they put green chilies on everything. Down there. Uh, spice of life, you know, I get it. And Texas has great ribs, I have to admit. Probably the best. All right, strategy. Meetings. Oh, why do you say that so exhaustingly? Because <laughs> I think of how many long meetings I've been in planning strategies. True. Sure, but necessary, right? Of course. What kind of things do you think about when you're um, deciding a strategy for a campaign or an action in the moment? Yeah. I'm always trying to get new people involved or people that, yeah, I'm always trying to bring new people to the table that haven't been previously involved. And I'm always trying to think about what would make the biggest disruption. How can we cause the the biggest disruption possible? What do we need? Right. I was reading this thing right before I got on here about this person that said, don't go to people's homes and don't go to their churches and don't do this. You know, allow people their privacy. And someone had tweeted back you know, underneath. So don't be effective at all. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, yeah, no, that's pretty, that's pretty true. All right. That leads into my next one. What about direct action campaign? Loi Lobby. Yeah. Uh, but Loi Lobby, I mean, you've worked on a lot of different campaigns. I think when I first met you, you were doing Tar Sands Pocket, the Southern leg of KXL. That's right. When we first met, I was involved in a direct action campaign, trying to stop the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline through East Texas and Oklahoma. I was speaking with someone the other day about it, and we were talking about how I feel like, you know, if it wasn't for just the intense pushback on the southern leg, it made it just a lot easier for them to not do the northern leg. That was kind of influential in some ways. Okay, one more. Okay, another one. Leverage. 
Um, I'm not sure. What comes to your mind? Leverage? I think of like pressure points, basically. The places where we can use what we're doing to create the greatest amount of change. I'll give you an example. When we were doing the Loi Lobby in St. James, I got this call, this frantic call from a person that we had been organizing with there. And we've been there for a couple of years at that point. And they were just really worried because they said that uh, ETP, Energy Transfer Partners, which is the same group that built Dapple and, and just evil, evil people, um, like the Green Goblin sort of, but without the cool tech. Um, mm-hmm. So I get this frantic call from, you know, someone in St. James and they're just like, oh my gosh, Sheree, like they are giving away food to kids at the school, elementary kids at the school by energy transfer partners, you know, by Bayou Bridge Pipeline at least. And uh, I, I, I thought about it for a second and then I was like, wait a minute. Like, are you kidding me? Like, they're so scared of us that they're feeding hungry children. <laughs> great. I just think that's great. And that was something that was like spontaneous. So I say when I say serendipitous, like it just kind of came up as a benefit, largely due to the, the stress that they were feeling by the community because of the long time organizing that we had been doing there. And I'm pleased with the idea that they were so scared of us that they bet the babies. I'm cool with that. You know? <laughs> right. That's what I think about. How about ban? Fracking. Why you say that? Because I was involved in a campaign to pass a fracking ban in the city of Denton in Texas on the Barnett Shale. Not just involved. Y'all were successful, right? We had, it's mixed success. Ultimately, yes, we were successful, but we passed a ballot initiative through popular vote to ban fracking in the town, which was pretty unprecedented since it was Texas. And then, of course, the state of Texas passed a new law banning fracking bans because it's Texas. So that made people feel like we were unsuccessful. And after our ban was lifted, there was one time when this company, Vantage Energy, came to frack in Denton. And we did a lot of protests, direct auctions, blockades. And that was in the summer of 2015. The ban passed in um, November of 2014 election. And since then, There have been no permit applications to frack in Denton. And one of my friends who's a journalist who covered the whole fracking fight, because it was going on for a year, uh, basically a decade before we were actually past the ban. Um, And she had been covering it a lot locally. She was trying to write a story that was like a five-year 2019. And so she reached back out to all of us that were heavily involved in the campaign, but she also reached out to industry to get comments from them. Mm -hmm. And they told us that with the protests that happened, and everything that was happening, it just wasn't worth it to them to frack in Denton, that they could go frack somewhere else that they actually didn't want to. So although our ban is not on the books and fracking is technically legal in Denton, we have successfully kept it out of our community because of our outrage and protest. All right, that's awesome. Yeah, I that's exactly kind of the kind of things that you know, I thought about when we were putting when I was putting this podcast together. And I really wanted to uplift because I feel like a lot of times people are like, I've heard people say, like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, it's so big, like that the enemy is just so big, you know. And um, and I realized that a lot of times it feels daunting. It feels like you can't do anything. And maybe you can't. Maybe you put everything on the line and then and, and they still like, you know, they 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 win that goal. 
but that doesn't mean that they win the objective. And especially if you intentionally, strategically look at the campaign that you have in front of you and decide where it is that you can feel really good about going ahead and doing that campaign. So sometimes that feeling comes along afterwards and you have to make sure you can control into some degree that narrative around that. But at the same time, sometimes it, it can happen before. And when it does that, then I think we get the most benefit. So I, we learned a lesson about Denton and that is that you can win the war and then these fuckers are just going to change the game, right? And then this, And then the other part of that is you can still win the war even if you don't if you don't win the game. I think most people don't realize that, that there hasn't been any fracking applications in about seven years now. How about the word failing? Test. Test. Failing a test. Are you talking about test on paper? Yeah. Or that's just the first word that comes to mind. What do you say? <laughs> Fail a test. And that big old F on the papers you get back at, 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 in school, or maybe that was just me. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I mean, I think that that's where you first start thinking about, like, you know, you really start being aversive to like failure, the idea of failure and what that word means. We talked about that in some earlier episodes, like people's personal relationship with failure and how that affects how they move in the world and how they specifically move within the movement. So that's great. So we're at the, we're at the end of the game. Thank you for playing along with me. Okay. You've worked in the NGO world and in the grassroots world. And I was just wondering if you could explain a little bit more about how maybe working with, and we say NGOs, we mean these are like big organizations that have big budgets. Sometimes they have a lot of privilege. And then we're talking about the difference of that grassroots fence line, frontline communities that are just basically on the front line of this battle. How do you kind of uh, navigate that? Right. I mean, yeah, it's exactly what you said. Think about whenever there is a natural disaster and, you know, people are responding to support. Often there'll be like kind of leftist and mutual aid organizers putting out like, don't donate to the Red Cross, donate to us, donate directly to people, impacted people, donate directly to their fundraisers. And I feel like that principle applies to like bigger greens. Like we are always going to be more effective frontline groups, community groups are always going to be more effective at distributing resources to our neighbors. We're always going to be able to respond faster. We're always going to know what's actually needed than something like the Red Cross. And that's just a little example, but thinking about the big green orgs too, it's the same way. They're big inflated budgets. I feel like most people that are part of the grassroots understand that the most effective thing that some of these big NGOs could do is just redistribute funds. Just give out survival funds from their inflated budgets. Just cut checks and money to people. Absolutely. And people who make donations, like, you know, you you can look, uh, look, look into organizations, especially community organizations, you know, that are doing stuff on the ground and you can give directly. I know a lot of times in our communities, we will give out specifically like people's Venmos and people's PayPal's. When you see that, you could throw in just like a few bucks. That really does help out. I also recognize how like, smaller grassroots groups uh, can be more limber in the tactics that they use. Right. I know a lot of these big groups that just will not engage in direct action because it's not in alignment with the tactics that they use. And I've also heard some groups that are kind of negative towards direct action. Why use direct action in the first place? And why do you think clogging up that machine is just so important to bringing justice? I think with everything going on right now, of course, the overarching climate crisis being the biggest context, but then, of course, the attacks on 
-hmm. abortion access, reproductive rights, attacks on immigrants, migrant justice, what's happening at the border, the attacks on black lives, like every, like everyone's under attack right now. And, and the climate crisis is looming. So the amount of disruption that needs to happen needs to dramatically, exponentially increase. The amount of disruption, the amount of us taking back our power, stopping things, shutting things down, realizing our own power um, as communities, I think is just so needed right now. Like you said, it's it's kind of one of the only things that's ever really worked. And we, we have to force it. We don't really have any more time. And that too, I think kind of connects to these larger organizations who sort of have a responsibility. If you're asking people in communities to go out and put their bodies on the line and give their everything from their freedom to their time. I know people who have lost homes, like, you know, things like that. If you're asking people to do that, then I feel like it's your responsibility to help support them from beginning to end. And I don't just mean till the time they get out of jail. I mean, until the case is over and they're clear. Would you agree? Right. And it's something that, I mean, I've heard you talk about this before, like we just have to build up, you know, we really need to scale up our movement's ability to take care of each other and to bring new people in and to be able to hold people in all of their trauma. And I think it's something that we're still figuring out and it's hard, but we have to figure it out soon. Right. You know, we have to figure it out how to start taking care of each other a little better. You know, I've worked with organizations before who are organizing around people who live in poverty. But I notice sometimes in some of those places, it's not that they're organizing with the people. It's more like they're organizing to the people. <laughs> people, you're right, they're coming with all kinds of traumas. And um, some people can perpetuate trauma and we need to know how to deal with that. But how do you envision that kind of support? I think it's really hard. I don't have an answer. I think um, I'd love to like vision it and dream it up with other people and not just for myself. But I think a couple of things I would say is it's not really a space, but it's more of a practice in my mind and us just getting in the habit of practicing like a little more empathy and compassion when someone that we're struggling with is either in conflict or disrupting or just acting in a way that is, is such because of because of trauma and if it's specifically because of things that they've experienced from activism do a better job of creating a culture where we let people sit this one out that we don't create a, a climate amongst ourselves where like we have to go all of the time and we're cognizant of things like burnout and we let people take a step back and that there's enough of us and that we're constantly doing enough outreach that other people can, you know, take risk mm -hmm. and step up. So it's not the same people on the front lines all the time, getting the shit beat out of them, facing the charge, you know, the same people Absolutely. responding all the time. Zach, can you come get your laundry? Hello. Mom, what happened? I think I'm stuck under the wall. Uh, uh... Who are you and why'd you break my wall? And trapped your beloved son. Wow. Whatever. What's he doing? I think he's saving you? Well, he's stepping on my hand. Hold up there. Will you be expecting us to thank you for cleaning up that mess you created? What kind of so-called superhero are you? Exxon Man? Huh? 
What happened in here? This fool in tights knocked on our wall. <gasps> and trapped your cherished brother. No, I'm right here. Now Super Zero here wants to be our hero by cleaning up the mess that they created. Yeah, who are they? BP or something? Sounds like a saber complex. That's right, son. Not only did we not ask for the wall to be fallen, we know best how to clean up the rubble. We don't need saviors. We need accountability. Makes sense. That's like putting the knife in charge of the wound and expecting healing. Exactly. Okay. Isn't he just trying to help? Wouldn't real help have been using the door? I think the door's on my back. And now that it's done, make amends by paying adequately for the true cost of the harm. Like paying for repairs? Yes, and by truly understanding the harm caused, never doing it again, and putting the power of forgiveness and recovery in the hands of the people who know the house best. And those most harmed? You got it, Zach. Least of all saviors who don't live here and know what we need to rebuild. Oh. Okay. Should we ask old Iron Head if he can help Zachary? Yes! Wait, Mom, look, I found a $100 bill in the rubble. Bingo! Wow, that's serendipitous. Huh? That's when something great happens just by chance, Captain Oblivious. Yes, our goal was to save Zack, but now we have $100 to go toward rebuilding. Good job, soldier. And maybe an electric fence around the property. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. The point is, until you try, you'll never know how many serendipitous moments you can create. That's why you have to know what you and others care about or need from the beginning so that you can take full advantage of those moments. Okay, move on. Yeah, let's go get that electric fence. That might be a solution for... Keeping out the saviors? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, y'all, let's go. Investing in long-term, value-based, real solutions or strategies is always a great idea. Hey, did you forget someone? Oh, yeah. Come on, Deadpool. Let's go. Cut that out. Mom? Mom? Siblings? Fighting Freedom Man. Turducken Boy. Professor Inhumane. Who was that mask, bro? 911, what's your emergency? Speaking of facing charges, <laughs> uh, you and I were both uh, a, a handful of folks that were um, arrested during the Lowy Libby campaign. And back in, in August, what was that, 2018? Yep. August of 2018, they it was ALEC inspired the American Legislative Exchange Council. And what they do basically is just they write the laws and then they present it to a politician. And then the politician presents the laws and then they vote on it. And that's how they get it. And ALEC had done that in Louisiana. Um, so they started this uh, critical infrastructure law, which it basically it made pipelines and, and pipeline construction a part of critical infrastructure like you would think of like water treatment plant, nuclear facility, something like that. Yeah, most of those arrests, I could say, were just egregious. Like, we, we had permission to be on the land. It was a public waterway. And the oil company had literally hired the sheriff's department to enforce this law that they had helped support uh, getting passed. So Sydney is one of the, the people who are actually actively fighting that in the courts right now. We, we have a handful of people from Loyola V that are doing that in two different court cases. And uh, I'd like to, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about how that's been and how that's going and the charges were 
dropped. Um, but now it's the whole idea of challenging those laws and uh, getting justice for the fact that they were so insanely violent and and they were just basically mercenaries for the oil company. Can you talk more about like that, how that's going? Sure. Yeah. So there's there's two court cases. One is White Hat v. Landry, and that one is suing the state of Louisiana to challenge the constitutionality of that critical infrastructure law. That one, we're hoping to get summary judgment on it soon, in the next couple of months. And then um, Spoon v. Bayou Bridge, which is myself and um, a couple of my friends specifically challenging our arrest. So we've sued uh, not only Bayou Bridge, the company, but also Mm -hmm. the St. Martin Parish Police and the company, it's called Hub Security, that was working private security for the pipeline company and probation and parole officers who were the individual people. So I was arrested on public waterways and charged with felony trespassing by probation and parole officers working a private contract for the pipeline company. At the time of my arrest, they couldn't even really tell us what we were being charged with or any anything. So we had a felony case hanging over our heads for three years. And since then, our cases have finally been dropped. And so we're challenging our arrest and hoping to get a little accountability and to get a judgment against, of course, mostly Bayou Bridge, but all of the bad actors. I think the case is really important because um, we do want to try to set precedent, uh, the constitutionality case, for other people that are facing. There's all sorts of anti-protest laws, not only since Standing Rock that was doing this critical infrastructure, but also since the George Floyd uprising. There's been many more anti-protest laws passed. And so we need to try to set precedent and push back against those. I also think, I mean, any like water protectors or like frontline folks will already know all of this stuff. But for people that haven't ever been in a direct action campaign, it's important to realize like how lawless and just bad actors that that the security is the police. Mm. So they passed these new laws to criminalize us. ETP got these new laws passed to criminalize us. And yet we found ways to be effective where we weren't breaking the law. So again, in my case, I was on the public waterway. In your case, you were on private property you were allowed to be on. We actually weren't breaking the law, but we were being effective in shutting down their construction. We were being effective in protesting. So they actually had to break the laws Mm. to arrest us, which is why we never saw any prosecution in our cases. They wanted to get us, get us out of the way, get us, you know, stop us from protesting. What they did was illegal. And so we're hoping to challenge a little bit more accountability and people that have been following movements, they've seen this kind of violence happening by the state and by the security companies up at Standing Rock, now at line three with us, I'm sure with our friends out in West Virginia fighting the pipelines out there. So fighting for us, but also for everyone. Can you help people to understand too, like there's a lot of different roles, right? And I always say like, you know, everybody has an important part. What other ways can people engage? Um, There's always all sorts of support roles that are absolutely necessary in every direct action, whether it's supporting people going through the jail process, whether it's making the art for the actions, the food, the banners, the child care so that people can participate they have children, um, the drivers, the ride givers, the fundraisers, the people that are making the graphics and doing the social media to make sure the action is as effective as possible. And as many people are seeing it as possible, there's so many ways to support. And we, we really need it all. Even some of the things we were talking about before, like what if we had more counselors? What if we had more people that are just there to provide emotional support? 
for people, yeah. you know, yeah. doing things where they're risking arrest. I remember thinking when I first started this stuff that, you know, there would be an end to it. But now I realize that I'm just here to basically, like you, Cindy said, support the people who are doing the work and create steps for those behind us to walk up um, because those fights will never or they, they may end someday, but it won't probably be in my lifetime. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for your wise words. You've always been pretty uh, insightful about things. I mean, there's two different things that I've been thinking a lot about. One, of course, with um, what we know is coming down the pipe with uh, Roe v. Wade, just really figuring out how we are going to build up the resistance to really take care of people that need access to abortions. A lot of people that are new, you know how this is when like you've been working on something for a long time and then something happens and there's a whole bunch of new energy in the room. That's happening now. And it's like, it's like both great and frustrating um but it's great so a lot of people think like oh we'll just take people out of state to wherever they need to go uh Mm -hmm. there's already been attempts to criminalize that and crack down on that but in addition to that there's not enough clinics for that but i mean there's Mm -hmm. no way that what's happening won't impact and not only are there not enough clinics for that or not enough capacity for that because they're already so swamped um that more states living losing access more people living in states losing access to roe will just totally overload the amount of clinics that exist right now. But it's also just not feasible for a lot of people, for for poor people that need abortions to maybe it means taking off multiple days of work, traveling somewhere, getting together the finances for a flight, a bus ticket, a hotel, a place to stay. You know, it's just, it's mm-hmm. actually a lot. Yeah, It's actually a lot. So we need to start building up the capacity and figuring out what we're going to do with that or yeah, supporting networks of resistance around making sure that anyone can get an abortion no matter where they live. That's one thing um, that right. I'm thinking a lot about. And then the other thing that I know me and you have been talking a lot about is just like the connection between military and climate and mm. how little the climate movement focuses on military use of fossil fuels, biggest user of fossil fuels in the world, and how little... Um, the climate movement focuses on like military emissions and how there's this, this lack of connection between like, it, it's impossible for us to get climate justice and environmental justice while the U S military continues to be the entity that it is since the George Floyd uprising. It feels like the amount of people that are willing to say abolish the police as a real solution that they are believing in has dramatically increased. And I'm asking us to challenge ourselves to also feel like the right thing to say is abolish the military. Like we have to start thinking that we have to start putting that out there as a real demand. And I don't hear people talking about that a lot, but I think that um, there's a lot that uh, there's a lot of energy from politicians and from big corporations to channel, like to funnel, like concern about the climate to false solutions. So I think there's been a lot of focus on electric vehicles and more recycling and things that we just know are always not going to be enough. And Mm -hmm. no one wants to actually tackle the root causes of climate change because of what it means of how much of a system change it would be for us and for most of all for the extremely wealthy people that cannot be allowed to continue to live the way that they're living. So taking on the military taking on U.S. supremacy, 
taking on colonization that um, and imperialism that facilitates the military being having active bases all over the world. All of that is connected to why they are the biggest user of fossil fuels. And I don't know that those that are in power or close to extreme wealth want us talking about that. Mm. How do we engage with new people? I think um, as radicals and as leftists, we have to be able to meet people where they're at. And mm -hmm. sometimes we don't all have the patience for that or the capacity for that. And I don't think everyone has to do that, but some some people have to be able to do that. Meet people where they're at, understand that maybe they haven't had access to the radical education or spaces or resources that you've had. That comes up for me a lot because like I said, almost all of my organizing work has been in places like Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, not places like Oakland, Boston, New York City, Portland, where there's like already huge badass communities of resistance or leftist communities. So a lot of times people that really want to be involved just haven't really had the same access that other people have had um, to radical education. And it's not offered in any of the spaces that they're in. So being patient with that, being willing to answer questions. Um, when we're, we're talking about youth specifically, of course, I always think it's important for us to to teach our history and for us to know our movement history, but also we have to let youth lead and give space for their ideas too. And I've been at a lot of um, events where it's kind of billed as youth led and it's not authentically youth led. It's still like youth led in theory, but like adult managed, right, like right. adults are kind of um, putting a lot of parameters down on the ways the youth can engage and what what's appropriate and all that's bullshit and with, you know, <laughs> yeah. like youth are the most impacted. So I just feel like we have to actually give them space to bring their ideas for us to listen to them, for us to not think that they don't know anything, discredit them just because they're, they're young. I've been involved in organizing movements since I was pretty young. So I, and I'm very inspired by the youth that I meet and they know so much Me more too. than I did at that time. So we just have to actually not discredit them. Me too. I heard somebody say one time that people often think of youth as tomorrow's leaders when they're actually leading today. So yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, you've always been a great friend and I always love to hear your voice and, and uh, see you when I see you. So thanks. And everybody tune in for episode number five. I'll be back talking about your stuff. Bye. Thank you. Bye.